Hello, med students. My name is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this week's episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. I have some extra special content coming your way over the next few weeks. I always have said that one of my goals with this podcast is to help you cross your slow clinical approaches, that kind of thing, stuff for your shift, but I've never put out much content specifically to help you crush your shelf. That's going to change starting this week. It's an honor to introduce you to a student named Mike Estefan. Mike is a medical student out of the University of Rochester going into emergency medicine, and he emailed me a few months ago just to introduce himself, give an episode idea, and told me he was interested in medical education. And I was like, yeah, yeah, give me a call sometime and we can talk about your med ed ideas. But we ended up talking, and what he wanted to do was like an Emma Holiday-style emergency medicine shelf review lecture. So I was like, sure, write it up. Show me what you got. I've fielded ideas with a few students before. Usually they kind of get busy and it never happens, not always. But Mike went for it. I don't hear from him for like a few weeks. And then, bam, he sends me this big outline. And the content was like pretty damn good. I was like, all right, all clear for me. You record that and I will post it. Clearly he was talented. I asked him. I got like 90th percentile on his shelf, several years of tutoring experience. He's smart. But what really impressed me is that he wouldn't put out the content without first getting it peer-reviewed by not one, but two separate faculty mentors. I didn't ask him to do that. He also got it approved by the university. No shortcuts. He did it right the first time, and he had the follow-through to get it done without my help. He hit hurdles. He texted me technical issues he was having, had to re-record some stuff. He's not like some famous podcaster that knows how to do this. He's never recorded himself before. It's like, you know, when you record your voicemail and then you listen to it and you have to correct it like 30 times, it's just weird to hear yourself talk. But he just kept working at it, figured it out as he went and troubleshooted. Learn from him. You guys, follow through, Being able to finish a project without people pushing you and doing it right the first time, putting yourself out there and taking chances, challenging yourself, are extremely valuable traits to have in life. People who can grind it out, not just with schooling, but the ability to develop an idea and then independently finish your idea is very rare. Learn from him. Is this lecture perfect? No. The content is Excellent for the record, but there's there's always room to grow, obviously. But he accomplished more than I ever did in medical school. He made something, something good. This series is going to kind of be like one big lecture, a big pile of high-yield content broken into smaller segments. Listen to this a few times the days leading up to your exam. Feel free to pause, re-listen, speed it up, whatever you need to do to retain it. Because this content, it covers like a lot of material that's going to be on your NBME shelf. It is incredibly high-yield. Part one and two will be about electrolytes and trauma, two of the, the biggest categories on your test. And this will all kind of evolve as Mike develops his style and grows. It's kind of fun to watch. Be like Mike. I like Mike. I'm proud of Mike. And here we go. Thanks for that introduction, Zach. Before we get started, I just want to give some credit to those that helped make all of this possible. I want to give a big shout out to both Dr. Pereira and Dr. Ruckman from the University of Rochester's Department of Emergency Medicine. They both dedicated a bunch of time outside of their usual roles to support me and to edit the script, ensuring the accuracy of my content. And of course, without Zach, none of this would have been possible. 
I really can't thank him enough for giving me this opportunity to get my feet wet in the FOMED community. Okay, let's begin by starting with some general concepts. The test writers love to throw students really long, complex vignettes with like a million abnormal lab values or physical exam findings, but none of that will matter if you can correctly identify the issues that I am going to discuss. So I approach every question the same way, and I start out by reading the last sentence of the question just to figure out exactly what they're asking for. Next, I just quickly skim through the answer choices and see what my options are. If the vignette is asking you how to manage the patient, then these are some tips that you can use to save some time and brain power on your exam. So my first tip for you is to always check the patient's blood pressure. Most of the time, I look for this before I even read the vignette. It's that important. There are just too many questions that can be answered by simply realizing that the patient is hypotensive and that they need a fluid bolus. For the exam, the cutoff is a blood pressure of less than 90 systolic. Now, you've got to use some common sense here. You know, if the patient is in florid congestive heart failure, you're not going to want to bolus them. But in general, giving fluids is the correct answer. He gets a bolus, she gets a bolus, everyone gets a bolus. Now, if the vignette tells you that the patient was already given a bunch of fluids and they're still hypotensive, then the correct answer is usually going to be packed red blood cells. My next tip for you is to always look in the vignette for a blood glucose level. If the patient has some form of altered mental status and the vignette does not give you a blood glucose level, then the correct answer is to order a blood glucose level. If they did give you a blood glucose level and it's less than 60, then the next step is to raise it. So in this situation, they're probably testing you on the best method to raise this low glucose level. You're probably okay choosing orange juice if the patient is conscious, if they have a normal mental status, and if they don't have any risk factors for aspiration, such as Parkinson's disease. If the patient is a little altered, but not completely unconscious, then D50 is a reasonable option. However, if the patient is comatose or non-responsive, then you really need to get that level up quickly. The quickest way to raise someone's sugar level is to use intramuscular glucagon. So I would use that in these circumstances. Another important situation that you need to be able to recognize in your exam when it comes to a patient with an altered mental status is the possibility for a drug overdose. If a patient comes in altered and they have a respiratory rate, let's say less than eight, then you wanna give naloxone empirically. Most of the time, they'll give you some pupillary findings to go with that, but I've actually ran into a couple QBank questions where the patient took multiple drugs and so they actually had a normal pupillary exam. My next point is that every female that is under the age of 50 needs a pregnancy test. This is going to come up multiple times on your exam, and it's as simple as that. My last general tip for your exam is to always keep in mind 
that if you're going to order imaging that uses contrast dye, then you need to check the patient's kidney function first, okay? The most common way that they test this on your exam will be a patient who obviously has a pulmonary embolism and needs a CTA. However, buried within the list of lab values they give you will be a creatinine of greater than 1.5 or a GFR of less than 50. So in this scenario, because the patient's kidneys cannot handle the dye required for a CTA, the correct answer would be to get a VQ scan. All right, let's talk about some electrolyte abnormalities. So I'm going to give you four separate one-line clinical scenarios all in a row. I know that is a lot to take in at once, but bear with me here. I only want you to answer one question for me that is common to all four of these scenarios. That question is, what key clinical problem do you need to be concerned about that is common to all four of these patients? So the first scenario would be a patient who comes in after suffering a crush injury. The second scenario would be if a patient comes in with really bad burns all over their body. Third scenario would be a patient who's in end-stage renal disease and comes in after missing two consecutive dialysis appointments. And the last scenario would be the patient with leukemia who just received their first dose of chemotherapy and is coming in feeling ill. So what is the major concern that you should have regarding all four of these patients? A crush injury? A burn victim? A patient with end-stage renal disease who missed their dialysis appointment? And a patient who essentially has, let's say, presumed tumor lysis syndrome? You need to think of hyperkalemia in all of these scenarios. Now a follow-up question. Let's say any one of these patients started to lose their airway. What paralytic drug are you not going to give these patients, and why not? So you need to avoid using succinylcholine for these patients. The reason for that is that succinylcholine can cause hyperkalemia. So if the patient has hyperkalemia at baseline, you're just gonna make it worse. So what EKG changes do you expect with hyperkalemia? So the two that you really need to know for the exam are hyperacute T waves and sinusoidal waveforms. You can also get some QRS widening and some PR prolongation, but really just focus on those hyperacute T waves and occasionally a sinusoidal waveform. You can Google any of these if you haven't seen them before. So what are the indications for treating hyperkalemia? At least on the exam, you treat their hyperkalemia if they have a level of 6.5 or higher, or if they have any EKG changes that are associated with hyperkalemia, regardless of their level. And what is the number one most important intervention when you're treating hyperkalemia? Good. You got to give them calcium, either calcium gluconate or calcium chloride. The reason you give calcium 
is that it stabilizes the cardiac myocyte cell membranes and helps prevent arrhythmias from occurring. After you've given the patient calcium, the next step is that you've got to lower their potassium, and there are many drugs you can use to do this. I would just be familiar with your different options. I don't think you need to know the indications for one over the other, but these interventions and drugs include dialysis, giving sodium bicarbonate, giving albuterol, giving insulin, giving furosemide, and lastly, giving kxalate, which is a potassium binder. All right, let's say a patient comes in with a potassium of 2.0. What do you expect to see on EKG? So I like to think of this as the opposite of hyperkalemia. So instead of seeing hyperacute T waves, you're going to see flattened T waves. You can also see QTC prolongation. Okay, and what kind of arrhythmias are you going to be worried about with hypokalemia? Good, you're going to be worried about ventricular arrhythmias, such as VTAC, VFib, and torsades. Let's say you decide to intervene and you give this patient a ton of potassium. You give them both oral potassium and intravenous potassium. But their potassium only goes up to about 2.2 when you are expecting it to be around 4. What's going on here? What do you need to do? So in this scenario, you should give some magnesium. I'm not going to go into the physiology, but low magnesium levels can make hypokalemia refractory to repletion. Moving on to sodium. On the exam, what are the indications for treating hyponatremia with hypertonic saline? So on the exam, you're looking for a significantly altered mental status, coma, or seizures. Otherwise, you're probably safe with choosing normal saline. All right, let's say a patient comes in with altered mental status. They're significantly confused. You draw some labs, and you find that they have a sodium of 115 and a glucose of 1,000. They need hypertonic saline, right? No. So this is something called pseudohyponatremia, and it occurs due to the osmotic effects of glucose. So essentially what you need to do here is you need to correct their sodium level for all the excess glucose in their bloodstream. You can do this by adding 1.6 to their sodium for every 100 that their blood glucose is over 100. So for example, if a patient has a glucose of 1,000, they have 900 over the standard 100. So you multiply 1.6 by 9 to get about 15, and you add that to their sodium level. And that new number is their correct sodium level. So for this patient, this would give them a sodium level of approximately 130. And the reason that they have an altered mental status is because that they're in a hyperglycemic, hyperosmolar state, not because they're severely hyponatremic. All right, just a couple more and then we're done with this episode. Let's say a patient comes in with a calcium of 15.2.
how do you treat their hypercalcemia? So first, you give IV fluids to promote excretion. After you've given fluids, you can give a couple agents that take a little longer to work, such as calcitonin, furosemide, or bisphosphonates. But the key on the exam will be recognizing that they need IV fluids. What are the indications on the exam for treating hypercalcemia? So you treat hypercalcemia on the exam if the patient is symptomatic, which you can think of that stupid mnemonic, stones, bones, groans, psychiatric overtones, or something like that, or if they have a calcium greater than 14, regardless of symptoms. And finally, what arrhythmia would you be concerned about if a patient comes in with a calcium of 4.5? Good. The answer here is torsades. And remember, to treat torsades, you give magnesium. All right, guys. Thanks for hanging in there with me. This concludes part one of this two-part episode. Stay tuned for part two, which is going to cover some of the high-yield concepts in trauma that you need to know for your shelf exam. Remember to keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.